All right, all right, all right, and welcome back to Pairing, a podcast where we pair wine with art and pop culture. I am your host, Emma Scherzarko, and this is part two of our conversation about Godzilla with Rafael Hernán Gamboa. If you found last Godzilla episode a little too philosophical when it comes to giant monsters, fear not. In this episode, we talk about four of the kaiju, the other monsters in Godzilla's world, and what wines I would pair with them. It's lots of fun, and we're so glad that Raphael took the time to come chat with us about these creatures and these films. Make sure to check out his YouTube series, The Long Take, and to watch his short film, Violet, which is streaming now on Amazon Prime. Winston and I just watched it. It's awesome. It's queer. It's sex worker positive. Go check it out. It's, it's fabulous. There are links to both in the show notes. Thank you to our newest patron, Scotty Christie, who also left us an incredibly sweet review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to everyone who has left us a review, to all of our patrons, and most especially, thank you to our producer-level patrons, Emma Cohen, Rena Sarame, Zoo Yorker, Allison Turi, and Michael Beck, who all have better comedic timing than Bradley Whitford, and to our advanced producer, Mara Zobrist, who is a better friend than Angiris. If you would like to join these incredible people and get all sorts of extras and bonus content, check out what we have to offer at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast. Before we get started, I am absolutely thrilled to announce that we have two new sponsors for this episode, and the first one I'm going to tell you about is Care Of. If you're listening to this episode on release day, it is the first day of summer. And I don't know about you, but I'm trying to get back into a healthy routine. Because I spend most of my time these days in the studio or editing audio on my computer, it's hard for me to feel motivated to be active, and I'm often stressed and fatigued. Winston and I were literally just talking about how we want to be more active and eat healthier and feel better, but with both of our jobs, it's just been hard to kick ourselves into gear. Then we heard about Care Of. Care Of is a subscription service that delivers vitamins and supplements customized for your specific health needs. You take a short quiz and answer questions about your diet, lifestyle, fitness, and health goals, and Care Of puts together a personalized plan just for you. Give yourself support this season with a boost. Whether you're looking for energy, better sleep, to maintain stress, or something else to help you feel your healthiest. Care Of's online quiz lets you know exactly what you need. You answer easy questions like how much sleep you're getting, are you looking for more energy, do you need something to help support weight management, or healthy hair, skin, and nails. It gets really personalized. I definitely didn't feel like I was taking a generic quiz. Taking care of your health should be easy and convenient. It can be really hard to know what vitamins or supplements you should be taking, but Care Of makes it easy to find out what you specifically need to be your healthiest, and you can modify your subscription at any time when your needs or preferences change. Care Of makes sure what you're putting into your body comes from the best sources, backed by honest guidance and transparency, all available to you on their website. I have to admit that at first I was kind of scared to take the quiz, like it was going to judge me or something, but it was so easy and stress and judgment free, and it was really conscientious. Like, I really appreciate that they ask you if you're open to like Ayurvedic herbs or not, and they're honest about how much research has been done into each product. And so I got a mix of vitamins that I recognized and some I never heard of, as well as some whey protein powder, which 
I got in vanilla because even though I like chocolate, Winston prefers vanilla and I'm a very nice person and it's delicious, but I definitely want to try the chocolate too. And right now you can get 25% off your first order from Care Of. For 25% off your first Care Of order, go to takecareof.com and enter the promo code pairing. That's takecareof.com promo code P-A-I-R-I-N-G. I am really excited to make care of part of my daily routine, so I hope that you all take advantage of this and check it out, too. And now, without further ado, here is episode 40, Godzilla Part 2, The Terroir of the Kaiju, with Rafael Hernán Gamboa. Okay, so I think, so we just talked about Mothra, so I think we've, we've got to talk about some other kaiju. So, Rafa, what do you have? What do you got? What do you got to talk about? Well, okay, I'd like to start off with, I, I, so, okay. So this guy, he's, 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 his name is Angiris. He is a, he's inspired by, uh, what do you call him? Uh, the Ang- Ankylosaurus. Ankylosaurus, the spiny-backed yeah. uh, dinosaurs. And they have the club uh, with tail. The kind of bony club on the tail. That's right, yeah. Uh, one of my f- childhood favorite dinosaurs, um, classic dinosaur, uh, and so basically, Angiris is just a, a scaled-up version of that. <laughs> no <Nice>. pun intended. <laughs> With some stylistic differences, like his head doesn't look—it it has resembles more like a crocodile head. Yeah. Nice. I don't think he's got a a ball on his tail. I think it's just the spines on his back. Is he the one that he's the one that turns into like a ball of death, though? Right? He can like. Roll I, up. I think he yeah I think he did that once or twice. Um, well, I feel like there was at least one movie where Godzilla uses him as like a literal ball and either kicks him or throws him at another <laughs> monster. Yeah, no, he I think he kicks him. I th- and it's hilarious. Yeah, I think he he kicks him at uh, and I think it's um I I want to say it's and I'm gonna probably screw up the title of this because there's two very similarly named movies that feature uh, a big monster uh, bash, but I think it's. I think it's destroy all monsters. There, there's one that's a really awful. Uh, it's basically a, a movie that's a clip show of a bunch of previous movies, and it's got a similar name. So it's either all monsters attack or destroy all monsters. One of the two. One's the terrible one with the kid, and this is the clip show. The other one's an awesome one where they all get into a big brawl on Monster Island. I feel like I've seen destroy all monsters, and that's the like watchable one. I think so, but again, I could be wrong. Someone's got to check me on that. Yeah. But um, anyway, so in that movie, whichever one it is, they're all teaming up to fight against uh, you know all the baddies. Like uh, and um, Ghidorah is there, who uh, we'll talk about eventually. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I think what he does is I think Godzilla just kicks him, like punts him, <laughs> and like he goes like spiny end first into into the bad guy. It's pretty awesome and, and kind of hilarious. This sounds um, really familiar. I feel like I must have seen this at some point in my childhood. <laughs> you know, it, it might have been gift too. You know, very, it's one of those things where, where you might have come across in the yeah. internet. Yep. That or the the short-lived Godzilla cartoon might have featured something like that. Oh, I forgot about it, yeah. Maybe, um, maybe, yeah. You forgot about Up From the Depths, 30 Stories High, Breathing Fire, <laughs> Head in the Sky? Oh, my God. This Godzilla. Just, it goes to show you how much Godzilla media there is. Um, oh, my God. It keeps growing. It's an obscene amount of, of like movies and TV shows and cartoons and stuff that you got to keep track of. 
But anyway, okay, back to Angiris. Yes. Angiris um, was the first kaiju to battle Godzilla, um, and he made his appearance in, I think it's called Godzilla's Revenge, or no, Godzilla, Godzilla Raids Again. That's what it's called. Okay. That was the first sequel to Godzilla. It came out, I think, a year later, 1955. That's right. That's the one where he rides a motorcycle. <laughs> I kid. Yeah, it's the, I kid. That's the, not a thing. E- the kaiju version of Easy Rider. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But anyway, so in this one, like it's you know this is the first sequel to Godzilla, so it's um, it's still in black and white. It's still super serious. It's nowhere near as good or as interesting as the original. But what's significant about it is that uh, Angiris is first introduced as an antagonist to Godzilla. So they're mm. they're it, it's the first monster duel. They huh. they duke it out. But interestingly, so after starting off as like antagonists, Angiris very quickly became. Sort of like the the Robin to Godzilla's Batman. He's a sidekick, right? <laughs> He's he is the most sidekicky of sidekicks of all time because this guy he's super loyal. He's you know he's super devoted and he, he you know totally he always throws himself into the mix, but he never wins. He always gets his ass kicked. He his function basically is to act as a the sort of. Um, a meat the sponge, shield. the meat shield. Yes, thank Godzilla. you. The cannon fodder to absorb all the damage uh, and and kind of also help grind down the bad guy, so that Godzilla can then come in and do the coup de gras or the you know the winning blow. So he's like a nice. true tank nice. to use video game parlance. There you go, tank. Yes, absolutely. Um, that's exactly what he is, and he's never actually won a fight on his own. Hmm. Like that's statistically verifiable he's always lost every single fight but uh and he's also one of the most underpowered kaiju a lot of kaiju have like powers that are kind of bordering on the magical like they'll they'll shoot fire or they'll have some weird energy beam or you know something like that but angiris the closest he gets is turning into a death ball right yeah it's all physical abilities basically it's just the spines on his body and how he uses his body so He'll bite. He'll swipe at you with with his tail, and uh-huh. um, he'll use his the spines on his back. But that's basically all he's got. He's not a particularly powerful guy, so you know he's he's very much um, the utility man, the utility player, the utility man. Love in, it in the Godzilla universe. And um, oh, okay, his origins. Duh, we got to talk about his oh, origins. Oh yeah, let's talk about the his ter- origins. The terroir of the uh, yes. uh, of the kaiju. <laughs> the terroir right? of the kaiju. Wait, I might have to call this episode that. <laughs> so he he has a similar origin story to Godzilla. He is he's more explicitly a dinosaur. I think Godzilla is uh-huh. kind of in a weird gray area where he's dinosaur like, but I'm not sure if it depends on what series whether or not he's actually a dinosaur descendant or not. Right. But Angiris definitely is, and he was also awoken through nuclear testing. He also mm. come, emerges from, from the water. If I'm not mistaken, the city he attacks is Kyoto, I think. Rude. That is one of the I most know. beautiful cities <laughs> in the world. I know. I really yeah. want to go to Kyoto. I'm pretty sure it is. I mean, I'll double check real quick. They Okay, so it's, it takes place mostly in Osaka. Is That's where the, uh, the monster brawl that... Uh, introduces us to Angiris takes place. Well, if I can flaunt my privilege for a second, um, <laughs> I did teach English in a city called Takatsuki in Japan, and it is a 300,000-person oh, wow. city exactly 15 minutes from Osaka and Kyoto. 
and both they bleed wow. into each other. Yeah. If you go from Osaka to Kyoto, you never leave city and suburb the entire time. Mm. Mm. And there's more than one very lo- like mid-sized city that is just a commuter city for people who work in Kyoto or Osaka. Mm-hmm. But wow. Osaka is more of like the factory town, and then Kyoto still has all the temples and the tourism, and it's got the most liberal uh, university in Japan that I'm aware of, which is Kyodai, nice. as opposed to Todai in Tokyo, which is like their Harvard. Ah. Kyodai is like, I don't know, Berkeley. All right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, awesome. Well, so just thinking wine-wise, what this reminds me of, a couple different things. The first thing that comes to mind is, so just talking about kind of the origins of Angiris as a dinosaur, talking about very, very old things. Um, Mm -hmm. I've mentioned this grape on the podcast before, but not for a very long time, and it's one of my favorites, and it's really fun to say. Is it a Sirico? No. Oh, I was but, so close. But that one is a great one, too. Swing and a miss, Winston. Yeah, I know. so I'm... close. So close. Winston has a few favorite grapes. I'm dead weight. And he, and he, <laughs> tends, to, he tends to go for them. <laughs> he says, like two. Yeah, Tempranillo and Assyrtico. Yeah, pretty much. Yep. yep. Um, but so there's this grape from Macedonia called Rukatsitli, and, or as my old boss used to call it, Arcassitelli. Um, <laughs> and it's. It's a white grape, and it's one of the oldest varietals in the world that we still have. You know, like there might be, or or that we have like record of. There may be older ones, but they're not as common, or other other things like that. But Rakatsitli, um, it's really cool, and it's very slaty. And I guess you're talking about this doesn't really go with like the meat shield thing. Like for that, you need like like a like an Australian Shiraz. But or he's something. got that hard shell that the Ankylosaurus has. Yeah, so too. it's got that kind of minerality, but it's also like talking about Angiris being underpowered. Like it's very it's it's pretty soft and pretty subtle. All things, all things mm-hmm. considered, and so it's kind of like a an, an underpowered wine. I would say that makes it sound bad, but it's it's really good. And we had some with uh, with some oysters the other day. It that was really is good. true at Whole yeah. Foods, no less. Yeah, I know. And there's a don't sue us. Yeah, Whole Foods. don't don't tell don't tell the people that we <laughs> that we eat oysters at Whole Foods. <laughs> <laughs> they have dollar oysters on Saturdays. Come yeah, on. yeah. Um, <laughs> it's not as bougie as it sounds, guys. Yeah. <laughs> oh, our little our little kaiju uh, queen is just scratching away in here. She's mad because we took her off the the balcony so we could close the door oh no yeah she's very upset um <laughs> but but yeah so that's so that's sort of my that's sort of my thinking and then and then you know like talking about a meat shield like that's got to be like a like like i said like a shiraz or a cab or something like that just something that you really want with like a nice juicy steak so you know and gyrus can go either way <laughs> i also i'm gonna hazard a, a, a pairing of my own. Oh, yes, do it. please yeah. do. So uh, I, and this is to pair with, I think, Angiris' personality. Mm. Angiris is, he'll always be there for you, right? He's dependable. He's always uh, there for you when you need him. Uh, he's not particularly exceptional in any way, but uh-huh. you can rely on him, right? Yeah. He's always there. Yeah. yeah. So that, I will say, two buck chuck. Oh, there you go. There <laughs> you go. Two buck chuck. He is our two buck chuck. So, no matter what, 
what life period you're in, you can always rely on two buck chuck. It's true. Yep. It's true. <laughs> no better way to commit slow suicide. <laughs> <laughs> and I just want to share one little anecdote that I think I think yeah. really summarizes uh, and Gyrus and his um I guess his importance to the entire franchise. Yeah. Um and Gyrus became such good friends with Godzilla that he was the first one to recognize that um, this is in uh, Mechagodzilla, the very first Mechagodzilla. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He was the first monster to recognize that Mechagodzilla was an imposter, basically. At first, Aww. he shows up looking like Godzilla. He starts attacking randomly. This is after Godzilla becomes reformed and becomes like a, like a good guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so everyone's like, what the hell's happening? Have aliens taken over again? What's going on? They're completely confused. <laughs> This, mind you, despite the fact that this Godzilla's roar is very obviously not Godzilla's roar. Godzilla has mm. a very iconic roar, and uh, this is not it. And Angiris is just like, man, something, something's fucky here, right? Yeah. And he goes, <laughs> he goes and confronts this Godzilla and dukes it out, gets his ass kicked as usual, mm. but in so doing, manages to like bite away some of the skin, revealing the the metallic underlayer. And thereby, you know, helping turn the tide and everyone realize what's going on and everyone is able to muster their forces to try to defeat Mechagodzilla. But there you go. And Gyrus oh, is, so is such a close friend to Godzilla that he's able to recognize whether there's an imposter. Oh, I, I love that. And I do believe that does involve him uh, using his death ball attack, which Mechagodzilla doesn't really get affected by. But I think he does that. Oh yeah, God, uh, Mecha Godzilla shrugs off everything Angiras does to him. Like there's just yeah. nothing he can do, but he he serves his purpose. Which also that's one of my favorite Godzilla movies because it involves King Caesar, which is like I don't know. It's it seems like the Japanese interpretation <laughs> oh, of God. King Kong because he's like he's basically like you know the the lions in um, uh, Chinatown like Lunar New Year parades. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's basically yeah, yeah. that. Except sixty feet tall or whatever. <laughs> God, King Caesar is so ridiculous. Yeah, and like, he also has a man. song. Also, kind of a kind of a ripoff of Mothra a little bit. With uh, mm. it's kind of a similar yeah. I- idea because he's summoned um, by like the ladies on his special island. It's very similar. Yeah, yeah, very similar. And Mothra did totally it first. inferior to Mothra. Yeah, yeah. justice for Mothra. <laughs> justice for Mothra. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, anything else about Angiris? Ooh, I I have one final thing. Yeah. Um, Because you are the man with the plan uh, and the wiki pages, uh, what period of Earth's history is the Ankylosaurus from? Oh God! Uh, I wa- okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna say what I think it is from what I remember from my memory banks of being a 12 year old, and all 12 year olds know things about dinosaurs. I know, right? I'm gonna say Cret- Cretaceous. Okay. okay, let's find out. I'm gonna. My guess is Triassic. Cretaceous. Got oh, it. nailed it! Nailed, nailed it. it! Nice work! Nailed it! Love it! <laughs> all right, moving on. Next kaiju. Still got it. There's so Still much so much uh, education happening. In these episodes. No, we're going we're going all over the we're place. Going all with over the, the place. Winston with the geographical knowledge. Yeah. Me with the dinosaurs. And you with the wines. Yeah. Here we go. <laughs> you know what else could you possibly need? Yeah, I mean, you guys are really <laughs> lucky, listeners. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> okay, so the next guy in our um, rogues gallery uh, is. Rodan. 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 
Rodan. Rodan um, is not the sculptor. A, a, no, <laughs> no. Um, this is actually, actually, Rodan is kind of the um, Americanized version of his name. Technically, uh-huh. his name is Radon. Oh, um, but Americans changed it to Rodan for reasons I don't even know what they were. Maybe because you know, Radon is a back then they would just element. change things willy nilly. Well, that's interesting because Radon would mean like um, like lightning. Something because huh. Ry- like Raiden in uh, Mortal Kombat, that means lightning god. Mortal Kombat, mm. yes, right. Mm. So it's almost the same. It's almost. It sounds like it's almost the same etymology as Raiden. It's- well, so I guess it was. It was intended to be like a contraction of Pteranodon, which is basically what it is. Gotcha. It's also not technically a dinosaur. Uh, right. Pteranodons, pterodactyls, they're not dinosaurs, yeah. but they lived at the same time. Skybacks, Quetzalcoatlus skybacks, <laughs> for those of you Dinotopia fans out there. That's right. <laughs> but, okay, so so the idea behind the, the original Japanese name is that it was a contraction of Pteranodon, uh, may have also been chosen to suggest radiation, hmm. and the spelling also corresponds to the name of, I hope I get this right, um, Ladon, which is the dragon-like monster represented in Greek mythology. So there's a lot of intended associations with the original name. Um, I don't know why they changed it in English, uh, but they did. Uh, so <laughs> now every, every English-speaking country knows him as Rodan. It's catchy. Uh, and he's basically just a giant pteranodon. He's, nice. a, he's a pterodactyl monster, basically. Nice. Yeah, basically. Basically. And, and he's... I think he was the third guy in the franchise. I think. Hmm. I think. Yeah, he came. He came before Mothra. So yeah. So it was. It was him first. Didn't he also have his own movie? He he had his own movie. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Rodan actually was introduced in a movie that featured two of them, two Rodans as a as a mated pair, basically. Ooh. So the origins of Rodan are interesting. Rodan. Most of these movies, they kind of recycle the similar idea of, well, all these creatures were affected by radiation in some way. Yeah. Uh, Rodan started to change things just slightly in that Rodan uh, is discovered inside an active volcano. Hmm. Think, I think Mount Aso, I think, is the one that hmm. they find him in. But the movie kind of begins almost like a, like a suspense, like a mystery kind of thriller. You start following uh, these miners who are working in a mine nearby, and some of them start disappearing. So they go investigating, and... What they discover is that the mines have become infested with um, some sort of like insect-like ancient creature that's been like again supersized. And in investigating this and dealing with this threat, they eventually end up finding Rodan's lair, and uh, I think they find an egg. Yeah, is, I was gonna egg. say, is Rodan like an egg at this time, or is Rodan already hatched and just like dormant? God, it's been a minute since I've seen it, and there's a. Guys, there's so many eggs and so many discoveries. <laughs> you know, you know. Kaiju in these movies. <laughs> you can't keep track of all the eggs. I'm pretty sure that they they hatched at different times. So <laughs> there's a Rodan that's out and about, and there's one in an egg that that hatches a little bit later. Huh. And anyway, the what's interesting about Rodan is that it's the first monster to be introduced as having a, a sort of well, for lack of a better word, relationship or or belonging to a community of some kind, in mm. that there's there's two of them and that they're they're paired. Uh, so it's kind of like it's almost something slightly romantic about them. Yeah. Right. Because a lot of bird species do mate for life, right? So maybe it's kind of going off that. Yeah. Huh. Um, cool. And it, you know the the 
I don't think the the pair ever came back. I, I think after the first after the eponymous Rodan movie, Rodan only ever showed up as an individual. But in that movie, part of the the tragic ending, which kind of became a little cliche in a lot of those early films, uh, again copying off of the success and the formula of the original Godzilla, where you're supposed to feel a little bit of sadness and guilt for the death of these creatures, regardless of how much damage they've wrought. Rodan, both of them eventually end up succumbing to military firepower and plummeting to their deaths inside the very volcano in which they had sprouted from, I guess. Uh, So, and, you know, it's... It's a mostly successful emotional moment, I think. Yeah. It's just it's like s- some very Japanese pathos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um the that feeling of um being unable to separate yourself from the monster. Right. Uh in in the way that w- uh, westerners definitely can um with ease constantly othering things and putting ourselves at a yeah. right. remove from well and this the cyclical nature of time and life kind of yeah, it seems yeah. like it seems like they're with both Rodan and Mothra. I mean, it's slightly different, but like there's kind of this cyclical nature. Like Mothra is reborn. Yeah, birth, death, rebirth. Yeah, Rodan. Yeah, I mean, they're they're almost like mythical in the sense that like after a while, the movies kind of stopped explaining why a monster would come back from the dead. Right. They would just reappear because. They're like those mythological figures. They're almost like gods where, you know, their their defeat is temporary. You right. know, their death is temporary. Right. They, they find another incarnation. Because they're kind of nature itself, really, when you when everything boils down, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, okay, so just a couple quick things about Rodan. Sure. Personality and powers. So Rodan eventually also became an ally of Godzilla. He's on Team Good Guy. Um, but it took him a minute to get there. Uh, mm-hmm. At first, he was kind of like a more like a like a Ronin or you know like a uh, like a Wolverine, you know, somebody who's right. just sure. kind of I'm gonna go on my own, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's a rogue. I go where I want to go, Bob. He's a rogue warrior. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, Rodan and Godzilla kind of both became good guys around the same time. Um, and this is in the movie, the introduction of Ghidorah, Ghidorah the the three headed monster. Are you talking Monster Zero? Godzilla versus Monster Zero is the American version of the name. Yeah, is right? that the name of the English version? Yeah, be- I remember it because it's the first like uh, good guy Godzilla one I saw where the aliens come and they're like, we require Monster Zero One and Monster Zero Two. And they like take Godzilla and another monster, which I thought was Angiris for I a think while. But that's the, no, that's the one after that. See, that's the, that's the one where um, I think that's. There's another name for that one. I think Astro Monster or something like yeah, yeah. Invasion of Astro Monster is the other one. So okay. the, and that's the one where they take them, they kidnap Godzilla, and I think it's Angiris, um, and they take him off pl- off world to, to like duke it out with Gita on some other yeah on some other planet yeah. or moon or something. Yeah, these movies get very very campy. But before that. There's a, the introduction to to Ghidorah or Ghidorah um, or Ghidra. There's different ways of pronouncing it. Sure, none right. of them are particularly correct. It's all your preference. Well, Japanese apparently. Japanese I, has no. It's well, atonal. Right? Yeah, I think the first one you said is actually like the Japanese pronunciation of Ghidra. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like with yeah. No I try to, I try to pronounce it that way, but I you know no emphasis the on the syllables. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, but anyway, in that movie, that's the introduction to the big bad. Gidor is the alien creature that comes to threaten planet Earth. And um, at this stage, we have Godzilla, Mothra, and Rodan. And Godzilla and Rodan are just duking it out because that's what you do when you're a big monster and you have all this angst to work out of your system. Yeah, totally. So they're you know they're duking it out, and Mothra you know has to save the world, and she's trying to get help. Poor Mothra. And she has to go and talk to them and be like, "Dude, I can't. Have you seen this guy? I can't do it on my own." And they're like, "We don't care. Why should we care?" We've got bigger problems here, guys. <laughs> Justice for Mothra. That's the subtitle of the episode, Justice for Mothra. <laughs> Mo- Mothra's my favorite. Mothra's my absolute favorite. She's she's my girl. But yeah, so there's a conversation happening. They don't end up helping her. She goes and fights on her own, gets her butt kicked. And like in doing that, it kind of like guilt shames Godzilla and Rodan into doing something. And at that uh-huh. point, from that point onward, they become good guys. So Nice. But but yeah, Rodan's kind of like um he's kind of cheeky. Like in his fight with Godzilla, he's kind of like taunting him and stuff. So he's got a little bit of um, spunk to him, I guess. And yeah, he's his power is also very simple. He's a giant flying guy. He creates big winds that knock things over. Um, yeah, I was gonna say he has probably the cyclone wind, right? And mm-hmm. yeah, it's almost like a like a like the wind version of a tsunami, I guess. You know, right? Um, mm-hmm. Hurricanes like category five or worse strength winds, and um, and does he have fire breath or something like that? He does later in the series. Like, hmm. There's a reboot. And I actually think they give him like fire powers way late in the game in like the Millennium series where they were all like one off movies. Um, I think that's when they gave him f- the fire breath thing. But for the most part, it's it's like wing powers, basically wings, claws, beak. Gotcha. And yeah, so I think, you know, I guess his terroir is uh, volcanic. Volcanic well, soil. Well, speak, that's, a, that's an excellent transition because what I was going to say is talking about <laughs> volcanoes. Volcanic soil is actually one of the best soils for grapes to grow in. And Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, Why is that? Well, there's just something about the, like, I don't know, the minerality, the chalkiness of it. Yeah. That I, I think volcanic soil is, like, uber rich in minerals. Yeah. Because yeah. it's basically just, like, all these rare earth metals that are trapped in igneous rock that then get melted and then get spit out. I have no idea if what I just said is accurate at all. I'm not sure. I'm <laughs> not sure. I'm not sure either. I do know it, that... It's great bullshitting. If yeah, he's so. very good. Well he's done. a very convincing bullshitter. Um, but, <laughs> but so what I do know is that there are certain volcanic regions, wine regions in the world. My favorite of which is um, around Mount Etna in Sicily. And so Mount Etna, which I believe is still an active volcano. I think I, so. I think so. And so they're the red and white wines that come from this area, but particularly the red wines are just some of my favorites. And the, the, the name of the red grape that's grown there, and I believe is indigenous to Sicily also, is Norello Mascalese. And it is really slaty it's it's kind of like pinot noir it's kind of like pinot noir from france which is really light and really like high in acidity and really kind of minerally um Mm -hmm. which is my kind of wine i feel like that's a good one for rodan because it's also very like like talking about like he's spunky like it's a very like vibrant spunky wine Mm -hmm. i also Also staying in Sicily, there's another indigenous Sicilian grape called Nero d'Avola, 
And oh, love that. Show. Yeah, Nero de Avila is great too. It's a little bit more full bodied, less tannic, but kind of juicier, but still really nice and dry. And I forget what it means exactly. I think I think it means like little black grape or something, Nero de Avila, but I always think it sounds like Nero de Aguila which is eagle. Mm. And mm. and so I always think oh, of Oh, that like, works for Rodan. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. cuz he can fly. <laughs> so I think that one works too. Well, especially now that we're learning that dinosaurs probably had feathers. Hey. Like they yes. they were just wingless birds mostly. And um I'm not sure because I know it, it is true that like pterodons and pterodactyls were not actually dinosaurs, That's different right. genus entirely, That's but right. It's not impossible that they had feathers too, and right. we just we just don't know because all we've had to go on is their muscular skeletal structure, and we're just now sort of getting the idea. And I think Robert T. Bacher and and a few other really awesome paleontologists have have sort of advanced this theory that's now starting to get widespread acceptance that dinosaurs really they they were birds. They mm. are birds. Huh. Yeah. They, that's where birds come from. They used to be lizards. And now they're birds. Well, certainly yeah. there's a, I forget, I forget the name of it, but there's definitely a branch of dinosaurs that just are birds, that they're all related. Yeah. Um, and there's a, it's like you can see the fork in it, and there's the, the, the one fork became nothing. Right. And died off. And the other fork became birds. Um, well, one of the theories is that's, that's why we call them raptors, is that the actual raptor genus of dinosaurs like the utah raptor velociraptor all that stuff they just kind of evolved into birds of prey and chickens and all this other stuff yep yep uh cool so that's what that's what we got uh just one other thing uh my other favorite volcanic wine region is also in italy but on mainland italy in campania which is around naples around where uh mount vesuvius was i I believe where pompeii used to be yes and um, or Mount Vesuvius is still there, but, you know, we haven't heard about it in a while. And we just learned this the yeah. other day, but there's a grape that comes from there called Falangina, which it's a white grape and I love it. It's one of my favorites and it's really hard to find. But it uh, apparently the etymology is that it kind of evolved from the Greek word for or phalanx, which is like... Oh. And yeah, it, and that has so it's to like do the with... Greek word for spear singular, yeah. like phalang, yeah, or something like that. Something and like then that. phalanx is the you know formation based on the spear, right? right. And um, and apparently it's because the vines are trained on like spear like trellises or something like that. I just I love that shit. That's so cool, <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> I don't know how to relate that to uh, to Rodan, but nope, me either. <laughs> it sure is fun. Okay. To, sure is Not fun every to hear tangent about. can be brought back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's the risk you take, you know. Exactly. It's the it's, yeah. it's the tangent <laughs> risk. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Before I go off on any more tangents, let me tell you about our second sponsor for this episode, Wink. Okay, I'm gonna be honest. While I try not to be too snobby about wine, you all know that I am very picky, and so I've been really skeptical to try out any sort of subscription wine service. But I have to tell you, Wink is in a class of its own, and I am absolutely thrilled with it, and I think that all pairing listeners will be too. Let me tell you why. First of all, the wines they have are really good and at really excellent prices. 
I've actually sold a few of them before, and they were some of our best-selling wines at the stores that I've worked at. And I swear I'm not just saying that. They work with top winemakers and growers from around the world directly to make all of their own wine, and bottles that would normally retail for over $20 are only $13. So you're getting higher quality for a lower price. Second of all, their philosophy about wine is very much in line with the pairing philosophy. Wink wants you to discover new wine that you might not try otherwise, and it gives you the confidence to learn more and try new things. That's like exactly what we want to do here. Third of all, on top of the excellent quality and value, Wink offers you incredible flexibility. After you take their palate quiz, which for me was shockingly accurate, if you don't like the look of what they choose for you, you can switch it out. You're not obligated to get monthly deliveries, you can skip at any time, or you can get multiple shipments each month or add more bottles to any delivery. I know that I love flexibility when it comes to subscription services, and Wink definitely gives you that. And there's no membership fee. It's literally a win-win. I took their palate quiz, and it immediately won me over because amongst the wines it chose for me were a delicious dry rosé, the summer water, a Valdegui, one of my favorite obscure but delicious red wines, hello, and a Chenin Blanc, which you all know is my absolute favorite. Now I'm going to give them feedback on the wines they chose for me, and then we'll see what other cool bottles they have in store. And right now, Wink is offering our listeners $22 off your first order when you go to trywink.com slash pairingpodcast. And it gets even better. I know you all hate paying for shipping. I know I certainly do. So Wink will actually pay for your shipping on orders of four bottles or more. So take something off your to-do list. Just go to trywink.com slash pairingpodcast to get $22 off your first order now. That's T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash pairingpodcast. You won't regret it. I promise. Now back to the show. Okay. So... The next monster up that I have here, uh, it's a curveball I want to throw you guys because um, I think it'll be hard to pair a wine with this guy, given his uh, entire nature. I like a challenge. Yeah. (laughs) So so this guy's Hedera the Smog Monster. This guy, he he comes from like the weirdest Godzilla movie of the entire franchise. The franchise is already strange enough as it is with all, all these aliens and like talking monsters and all this shit. But this movie is like a drug-addled nightmare fuel almost like it it kind of it kind of cycles through all these different kinds of styles without any real sense of like reason for it or justification it just happens like you it'll do things like you know psychedelic animated sequences just kind of randomly interesting always a sign of a coherent film dance numbers and like hippie parties and all sorts of weird shit so it's very it's a very strange film and it's a very strange monster um this this creature is an alien from outer space. It comes from uh, a so-called dark gas nebula in the Orion constellation. Uh, and the reason it comes to Earth is because of all the pollution that Earth has. It feeds on pollution. And it, that kind of fuels it and gives it its, its powers. So like the film is like very obviously an environmentalist film. So he's Tim Curry from Fern Gully, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's it's one of those like extremely obvious, yeah. uh, meant for children, save the earth kind of movies. But right. isn't this also the one where like the fog will roll over people and then they'll just be yes. skeletons? Yeah. No. This this movie part of the weirdness of it isn't just it's 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 uh, 
film style, but also its bizarrely fluctuating tone. Hmm. Like it's it's it belongs to that era of Godzilla movies where it it they focus on kids as as a protagonist because the the franchise went from being like this basically a horror film about the atomic bomb explosions to a family friendly right. uh, franchise where right. you, you kind of had to live, develop this very personal relationship to these monsters um, and it's very kid friendly uh, so. It, in a sense, it's it's meant for kids. It's it has a kid as a protagonist in it, and yet you're seeing footage of people turned to bones. You know, hmm. like getting their all their flesh melted off by the polluting powers of this um, this creature. So yeah, it's a very strange film. It's it's like it's it's almost like watching Temple of Doom as a kid, and the guy's heart gets pulled out of his chest, and you're like, holy shit! Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> what do I do with that? Yeah, you know? <laughs> sure, that tracks. I do remember that moment when I was a kid. <laughs> it, I, it fucked me up, dude, because yeah, it's still it's still sure. pumping. The heart is beating. I know. And the guy's that'll, looking at his own heart. That'll mess you up. See, as someone like, who grew up in the Pentecostal church, I was just like, sure, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can definitely do that. I hope nobody does that to me. I was like, if anybody puts their hand on my chest and starts turning it, I'm in trouble. Yeah, no, it, that that movie fucked me up when yeah. I was a kid. Bodies like, absolutely, it it was. Um, oh yeah, I had some Temple of Doom nightmares. I, I, even to this day, it's it's still one of those things like where where I think of that image and it haunts me. Um, yeah, I, I really can't watch that movie. It's just it freaks me out too much. I get, I get um, it. I totally, totally get it. But yeah, so so I think I would imagine for a lot of kids who watch this movie, uh, they probably had a very um, similar experience, fucked up reaction, yeah, to to that. But anyway, so this this creature, he's interesting because he doesn't really have much of a personality. He's more of like a like mm. a like a force of nature. Oh, I guess not really nature. He, he's more of a, of a of a force than a than a than a person. Sure. Um, and he goes through a lot of different mutations. First, he starts off as like a small little tadpole like creature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that goes to a sort of quadrupedal, more lizard-like incarnation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, bizarrely, he's also got like a flying saucer version, uh, which mm. makes a brief appearance. Interesting. Uh, and uh, then his final form is, is kind of like a this. If you, if you imagine somebody wearing a ghost, like a sheet, as a uh, to be a ghost for Halloween. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. kind of like that. You get the impression that, that it's kind of wearing a sheet of sludge as its costume, but it's it's what it is. It's kind of like an like an ambulatory anthropomorphic wedge of sludge. What's the name of that Batman villain? Is it Mudface? Oh my god, I know what you're talking about, and I can't. Clayface. Remember. Clayface. Clayface. Yes. Yeah. Clayface. So it's that kind of deal where he's just like dripping sludge all the time. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. And that reminds me of something that reminds me of something like from Miyazaki. Like oh, the, No Face also. Yeah, No Face. And Spirited Away. Though No Face has a little bit more of a personality, I would say. True. But Although he's also supposed to represent like a pollution that's problem. True. That's true. Because when they clean him up, the river spirit like comes out. That is true. Oh, no, that's the, the sludge demon that comes. Different than No Face. It's a whole thing. Anyway, proceed. Yeah. It's a whole thing. Yeah. No, it, it, so it's very similar to that. It's kind of amorphous. It doesn't really... It's very difficult for Godzilla to fight because of that. It it, uh, it doesn't really have like a body per se. Mm-hmm. So you know, you're, when when Godzilla punches it, it's basically just punching jelly. You know, like, mm-hmm. the fist just goes right through. It doesn't actually have any kind of like physical impact. It's resistant to Godzilla's atomic breath, um, and its powers are pretty strong. Like it has a uh, 
It can throw chunks of its own body that are like super acidic and can burn even through Godzilla's skin, which is pretty impressive considering how how resilient Godzilla is. And and yeah, and oh, he's got an eye laser that come out of these weirdly vaginally shaped eyes, which I don't really know why it has that kind of symbolism, but I don't really know why anything in this movie exists. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. It's it sounds... a very weird ass movie where I just yeah. don't, I don't know what was going on. I don't know what they were smoking, but whatever it was, it was pretty great. Yeah. So basically that's basically it. I mean, it's, um, it's a very blunt, uh, environmentalist message. And, oh, I forgot to tell you how, how Godzilla kills this thing, which is oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, Godzilla has to collaborate with like, uh, the military who've got this weird, like, trap contraption they've got to build it's like two different like walls that emit an energy and godzilla basically has to like drag the monster over to fight in this um set arena and the machine malfunctions so godzilla has to power it himself with like his his atomic breath and once it zaps the the creature that's when all the sludge that surrounds it kind of is able to dissipate revealing this like this like hard core almost like a what's at the center of like a Tootsie Pop or whatever, like just, mm, you know, the mm-hmm. hardcore of the thing. And that's what Godzilla is finally able to like physically attack and destroy. Um, and that's how he wins. But uh, yeah, no, it's um, it's a very toxic, very ex- acidic creature with no personality. So I'm really curious to hear what you uh, can pair with it. Okay, I have several thoughts about Most this. bourbon, <laughs> yeah. I guess. <laughs> Okay, well, first I'm going to start with the acidic thing because that's kind of the most direct correlation because obviously one of the major components of wine is acid. And I personally am a big fan of acid in wine. But as I've mentioned before on the podcast, it has to be offset by some other elements in order for Mm -hmm. it not to be just totally overbearing. So you actually, if you've got a really, really acidic wine, you actually need a little bit of sugar. You need a little bit more sugar in the wine Mm. as well to offset that. That's why off-dry Rieslings are such a thing because they're usually really, really high in acidity. And actually that sweetness, it's more just there to offset the acidity. Um, And... I love acidity in wine, but if you have something that's like pure acid, it is not pleasant. <laughs> like a whiskey sour just like so, pulls so your maybe, lips back. Maybe like yeah. you can give me like a you know really good wine that has the qualities you're looking for, but also what's like the worst wine you've ever had maybe? Hmm. You know? Yes. Yeah. I'm trying to think what the worst wine I've ever had is. Some kind of cougar juice or? No. no. <laughs> cougar juice. Yeah. Cougar juice. <laughs> we love cougar juice here. Um, <laughs> that's the really oaky Chardonnay. That's like the anti-acidity wine. Uh-huh. But the, the closest thing that I can think of and some wine snobs are going to hate me for saying this, but there's a, there's a, like a all natural wine region in, I think the Jura called Vin Jean. And I had okay. one of these one times and it was, it was just so sour and so acidic. And I was like, and, 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 you know, like wine nerds go crazy for it. I was like, I love my weird funky wines and my acidic wines but this just tastes gross to me (laughs) it was like if kombucha had gone bad oh my god yeah so i i i did not like that i'm not saying all wines that are in that style are like that but this one that i had i was like oh this is bad 
That sounds like the perfect pairing for it. Yeah. Yeah. What I would say is like your really cheap scotches, like your your mm-hmm. Cuddy Sark yeah, or whatever. Yeah, like yeah. those are like, yeah, you're tasting smokiness, but the smokiness you're drinking is is it's just ash. That's just like ash. <laughs> yeah. That's barely yeah. been filtered out of a charred oak barrel. Like that's right. all. This is like right. the dregs of a barrel that they've scraped up with some of the ash <laughs> and charcoal in it. And like still alcoholic, but you know. Yeah. Mm. I did have two more thoughts that are not necessarily good wine pairings for this monster, but kind of concepts, again, that I can relate. Uh The first one is um, just talking about it being like sludgy. You know, sometimes Mm. if you get to Mm -hmm. the bottom of a bottle of wine and it's just like pure sludge, that's actually a good sign. It means that the wine was probably made very well and that it has aged and like that sediment at the bottom of the bottle there is... It's just a natural byproduct of it aging and growing and getting better. However, it's very unpleasant to drink. So that's why if you like go out to a fancy restaurant, the sommelier will like pour it very, very Mm. carefully into a decanter. Mm. And what you're actually doing is you're, and you hold it up to a light and you're looking for that sediment and to make sure that you don't pour that into the decanter. So um, that's just one thing. Sludge, not bad. Just watch out for it because it's not like pleasant to drink, mm-hmm. but it's not a sign that the wine has gone bad. And then mm. the last concept, which is something that I have talked about before also, but is this talking about something like this, this monster that just kind of rolls in and takes care of pollution and or feeds off of pollution and all that. In the 1800s, there was this terrible bout of phylloxera which is a pest that attacked basically all the grapevines in Europe. And eventually, and they didn't know how they were going to save all these vines. And eventually, eventually what they did was they grafted the vines onto American rootstock. And so, huh. so we can relate that to, you know, Godzilla teaming up with uh, the American yeah. military or <laughs> the military. And, you know, which obviously, I, I don't know why that makes me think of America. I don't think of a military, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's, sort of my correlation there. Also, fun fact, speaking of Chile again, Chile is the only country in the world, the only winemaking region in the world that has never had phylloxera be a problem. So there we go. Do you know why? No, I don't think anybody knows why. It just happened to be resistant to this pest. Whatever, whatever, maybe the soil conditions there are, or maybe mm-hmm. just like the timing of transplanting the grapes from Europe or something, or the vines from Europe, it maybe predated when phylloxera hit. I don't know, but yeah, I'll I'll look into it. I'll see if there's if there's a reason for it. But as far as I know, no one really knows why. And so maybe because you mentioned something of military makes me think of America. Yeah, um, I want to make a small little point that's like tangential to the tangential. Tangential. We got that. <laughs> um, We've all been drinking. That, um, in all these movies, there's a there's a constant affirmation of total social cooperation being the key to survival and success. But this relationship to the world powers becomes more of a thing that the films begin to kind of delve into and explore. That Japan. Japan desperately wants to be independent. Like they want to be self-sufficient. I guess it's a better term. Um, and because for so long they had a stunted military, the way, the way 
Japan envisioned its future was through technological and economic mastery and superiority. And cultural uh, so That's where you get a lot of Japanese sci-fi anime of it being all these mecha things, like th this very techno-punk kind of things. That's yeah. how they were able to channel their forward-looking um, vision. Uh, and that's often the way they confront Godzilla is not through sheer military force, although they do try it, you know, shooting a bunch of tanks and missiles at, at it. But they increasingly try figuring out some crazy technological thing to do it. So some, some crazy robot or some, some weird-ass hovercraft that has a weird, like, uh, special ammunition kind of thing. Like right, yeah. Some technological marvel that will hopefully save the day. And later on in the series, they have this kind of awkward relationship with the United States where the United States will come in and be like, you know what you should do is you should nuke Godzilla. And Japan's like, mm, maybe oh, not. Come on, yeah. not again. Maybe don't, we don't want to do that again. Maybe you not. Know? Maybe not. Yep. And the United States is like, but look how big it is. Come on, you got to use a nuke. <laughs> right. yeah. and, and like, you're going to use a nuke. And, and so this, this kind of political tension kind of comes in. And so the next video I say I want to do, I'm going to just talk briefly about this because I think it's super interesting. Yeah. The, it's Godzilla 84 uh, is the first movie that really seriously tackles Japan's unique place in between the two Cold War factions. Like, it's basically on the front lines between the United States and Soviet Union, right? It's like right there. It's a tiny little island nation. They're very anxious about nuclear war. And in that movie, when Godzilla attacks and nothing works, the United States and the Soviet Union are both meeting with the Japanese prime minister and they're both saying the exact same thing. They're saying, you need to nuke it. And this is really interesting exchange where they're, they're in the meeting like kind of a, like a sort of U-shaped conference table, the prime minister in the middle and the other two delegations on either side. And it's kind of, both those delegations are shot like they're mirror images of each other right. as they're making the same points. And there's even a line which is... Uh, Amazing, because it was actually cut out from the American version, where the American ambassador, after the, the Soviet guy says his spiel, like, you need to do this thing, the American guy goes, he's right. This is 1984, you know? Like, yeah. like the idea of an American audience hearing that, it would be so alien yeah. to them, you know? Yeah. An American ambassador agreeing with the, uh, a Soviet, Soviet ambassador about nuclear violence, it's just unheard of. But it just kind of shows you just step outside your bubble for a second, you know, see how your country looks like from another place. And to Japan at that point, being pressured by the United States to be to up its military, to be a more significant contributor to NATO. And on the other side, you got the Soviet Union, who's still in this pissing contest with NATO. It really didn't seem that different to them, you know? Yeah. Like, we're here stuck between two people who are, for some reason, trying to thump their chests at each other, and we're stuck in the literal middle. Uh, and we don't really get a say in how to manage our own affairs or our own crises. So anyway, long tangent aside, I thought it was interesting to bring up. No, that uh, is. Because it is very uh, interesting. I think that kind of transitions. I mean, I know we have one more monster to deal with. But one more. that seems to sort of frame, I don't know, my personal feeling about Godzilla and why I connected to Godzilla so much as a child, I think, and still do as an adult. Godzilla represents a sort of a salvation after powerlessness to me, mm. you know? And it's something yeah. that a lot of like born again people have. And, you know, I'm like an ex born again person, but I think, and maybe that's part of it, but, but the idea that like, after you've surrendered 
to the fact that you're not in control of your own destiny, then something good happens and you don't mm. deserve it or or yeah. or mm. earn it or facilitate it, but all of a sudden there's this champion for you. And so that's why mm. when I when I say Godzilla's roar is my happy place is because in those films yeah. when Godzilla is the good guy, it is a, this sort of transcendent experience where you know as as a person in your everyday life dealing with your student loans and dealing with your bills and dealing with all the yeah. myriad bureaucratic frustrations and dealing with the law enforcement trying to kill you and put you in a cage and it's just everything else like all of a sudden something just stands up and sort of roars its defiance yeah and you can relax for a second and let it fight for you hmm. and that's like a pretty yeah. cool I don't know what sort of psychosexual <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. experience that is, but I know that I have it. And yeah. I it. Yeah. I, I think like, you know, we all kind of relate to our heroes a little bit differently, you know, but I do think there's something universally lovable about Godzilla. There's something about the guy, you know. Mm-hmm. He he he's like Captain America, one of those kind of heroes where you're like you got to like the the dude. You know, there's mm-hmm. something about him that you you can relate to and like for me yeah, his roar is very comforting, but it's also like a like a humbling sort of thing for me. The idea that all the wrongs that you've actively or passively participated in and whose payment you you reap, that there there can be a force out there that rectifies things and that you owe it a great debt. And for me, that that mother nature aspect of a lot of these kaiju particularly Mothra and Godzilla, this feeling that we don't deserve them, that kind of Wonder Woman thing that like you right. feel a guilt of yeah. not being good enough to deserve this kind of love uh, or this kind of protection. Yeah, Superman, DC does it a lot. Yeah, I, I, I feel that a lot when I watch um, Godzilla movies that, that mm. this majestic creature who really shouldn't be helping us at all, you know, um, whose, whose rage in its, in its birth, I guess, is totally justified. It's it's pain, it's suffering, you know, that that what have you done to me? What have you done to the planet? Really is a kind of a humbling sort of thing. It's it's like a sadly beautiful thing and it's weirdly comforting to me. Right. You know, like it's a weirdly comforting thing. But yeah, I I love the dude. I've got a little plushy of him, you know. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Love, yeah. yeah no, it, it sounds like you and I have a very kind of post Christian relationship to it, but I'm curious what, what you're thinking, Emma. Um, in terms of what's your relationship, I know, you know, what, to the extent that you've interacted with Godzilla, sort of what, what is it that you're thinking kind of about this monster and how you interact with it? Well, you know, I, I guess I just never thought about it that way. Um, I never had that kind of analysis of Godzilla before, but what, what you're saying, like, there's obviously, there's this huge cultural, social history surrounding this figure and I can totally see how it would have this power for both a people as a whole and for a person individually. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that maybe the difference is, I'm not sure, but but from the sense I have from having seen the most recent Godzilla, that the direction that filmmakers are going in while still calling upon this kind of cultural significance of Godzilla is that they're appealing a little bit more to a personal connection 
I don't. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I. I. I don't know specifically, but I think that's such a cool thing and that's such a cool phenomenon. Honestly, what I was thinking because we've been talking about, you know, religion and like history and all of this. I'm like, man, in six thousand years, whoever's left is gonna think that like you know. Godzilla and Mothra are the gods that that you know <laughs> ruled our time. You know, like yeah. and Iron Man. Yeah. I think I think about yeah. that sometimes. You know how yeah. like yeah. what are people who live thousands and thousands of years from now going to think about the culture, our, our cultural artifacts? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and like yeah. you know what what sort of what sort of context will they have yeah. for what we've created? It'd be that Ozymandias thing. I always end up thinking of uh, the Little Mermaid and. Yeah. Um, Forget what the crab's name is, but he's like Sebastian. Sebastian. picking up all these artifacts. Yeah, Sebastian. He's picking up all these all these artifacts, and he's getting them totally wrong. Yep. Um, and like, I wonder about that, you know, with our own relationship to our own archaeology, and yeah. what you know, thousands of years from now, people would would make of our devices, you well, know. Or it's just the it's the Planet of the Apes, you know. It's the Statue of right. Liberty half buried in the <laughs> you sand. You damn dirty apes! You blew it up. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you maniacs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a great movie, by the way. It that is first a great one. Movie. Yeah. Really solid, uh, but yeah. no, I, I I do think that it is it is a kind of a personal savior fantasy that's sort of secular and transnational, in the way that like somebody is gonna come and take care of you, and that's a well weird... either take care of you or or smash your or house, smash your house, and like <laughs> yeah. you know what? Or both, sometimes both at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the interesting thing about it is that the salvation comes with a cost every yeah. single time. Just because of the sheer size of these guys, yeah. right? right? So, you know, you always pay a price for being saved. And I think that is certainly not something we have in our, like, pantheon of heroes necessarily. Yeah. Um, and we kind of bristle at that when it does accidentally happen, like uh, uh, Man of Steel. People got really mm -hmm. mad that Superman mm -hmm. was just kind of, right. you know, mm -hmm. brawling with all these. We don't like that idea as Americans. But, you know, with, with these kaiju, there's almost this feeling of, like, we kind of deserved a little bit of this. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think we've been through a lot um, in terms of, you know, personal relationship to Godzilla and his <laughs> monster companions. Personal relationship to Godzilla. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and all the, you know, secular and imperialist concerns and all that stuff. Um, are there any kind of final thoughts you have? Do you want to go through this, uh, the last, the plant monster? Or Yeah, I want to do the plant monster real quick before oh, we go because yeah. uh, this one's, also super weird and interesting. I love it. The last monster on my list uh, is Biolante. Biolante is a monster from the second series, the uh, Heisei series after the reboot in 84. And this one, this one's weird. It's it's a uh, a hybrid between a, <laughs> a rose, Godzilla's genes, and the mad scientist who created it, uh, his daughter's genes. So it's like it's human plant, human rose Godzilla uh, mixture. Doesn't it mostly mm. grow through the vines where it's like, yeah, like scooping uh, people up in the I vines? I forget exactly how it, it evolves, but it goes through several different phases. Uh, like in its, its first form, it's, it's kind of like just like a giant plant. Mm -hmm. Just kind of sit still, and then then after that, it it, it kind of get, gains a more Godzilla y kind of form where it can kind of move around and do stuff. But but yeah, it's it's really strange because it's it's got a part of this this kind of mad scientist daughter's personality 
in uh, trapped inside of it. Hmm. Um, and it's this for for the part of the series that got rebooted to something a little more like a lot more serious than than what it was before, where it was going super into the family friendly, uh, silly stuff. Um, this was marked like a, a, a kind of bizarre turn towards the the fantastical. So it's got a, it's got a couple of of things. It, it, so it's got tendrils that it can use. Um, so it can like they're like vines, right? So you can wrap around. It can choke you. It can grab you. Um, right. Mm-hmm. It's it's got um, it can turn into a cloud of spores, and it has it has sort of like a. It, that's its ability to fly. It kind of it turns itself into spores and then it can float away. Oh, how very Dracula! That is very Dracula. And uh, that's it, kind of how she survives fighting Godzilla. She kind of basically turns into a cloud and farts away. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, let's see. Uh, it, so because of this, it can also regenerate, and it has also a a kind of um, so this this is a, a sort of similarity to Hetera. It's got a corrosive sap, so it can it can spit. This kind of, um, I guess, for lack of a better word, acidic sap, and yeah, and I remember, I think the like the way when it died, it kind of, like the spirit of the daughter was released, and it was this kind of like angelic thing of it floating, of like her floating away, um, it, very, very magical very uh, sort of thing. But one of the one of the few instances of a very popular American trope, which is the mad scientist. He he creates this creature for for no like really good reason you know like he just kind of does it because he can you know <laughs> like yep um, which is a very American thing it's not something you usually you tend to see in a lot of other um, science fiction traditions sure. but yeah so and and a slightly socio political thing here uh, the reason why his daughter died is she was in he had a lab in some uh, fake Middle Eastern country called Saradia. And that lab was bombed by like terrorists or whatever. That's and his daughter was there and she died. And so crazy with grief, he tries to keep her alive by injecting her into this experiment. The the rose was was her favorite flower, so it's like an emotional thing, like to put her inside in the rose, her favorite flower. Yeah, yeah. It 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 goes way off the rail uh, rails into fantasy very fast despite having rebooted the whole thing as a super gritty thing with a Godzilla 84. Interesting. Yeah, and this is a common thing I think like for for Japanese culture and Japanese media the the fantasy interweaving with reality is very very common. Mm-hmm. Um whereas we Americans prefer a much more strictly delineated separation. We like it's either gritty and real or it's it's wacky, you know, right. like you can't right. really do too much of like the weird shit and be like, MCU notwithstanding, like that's right, different. Right, right. But like having this kind of thing is a little unusual for for us still. But it looks like the new movie is going to lean into it, which is cool. Like they they have all, like the four monsters in it, and I doubt they're going to sit there and give you a lot of logical explanations why anything's happening. It's yeah, just going to really yeah. revel in the existence of these you can creatures. Always which can on Bradley Whitford to to keep it light. Oh yeah, he's so he's his is comedic Bradley timing Whitford is impeccable. Bradley Whitford is in oh it. Oh my yes. god! You know he went to Wesleyan. Oh my, <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! I get emails anyway, from yeah. him sometimes. So, uh, it's a, basically a rose monster with a human so spirit a trapped rose inside of it. With a human That's spirit. Yeah. So this is this is kind of, I'm having the hardest time with this one because when you were first talking about, you know, how it's kind of this hybrid between a plant and a person and like something else, uh-huh. the the closest thing that I can think of 
is that there are some grapes that are like man-made that are man-made genetically engineered grapes. Mm, mm-hmm. So I've talked about Pinotage before, which is probably the most famous, which is in South Africa. And that's a, it's it's like, it's not a blend, like a wine blend, but it's like a genetic cross. Like it it is a man-made grape that they manufactured, literally. Okay. Um, and that, and Pinotage is Pinot Noir and a grape called Cinso. But then a lesser known one is called Marcelon, and that's one of my favorites. And that also sounds like it could be a Godzilla monster. Yeah, I feel like. it's it got a good does. monster. Yeah. It does. Marcelon. Yeah. Um, and Marcelon, I believe, is Cabernet Sauvignon and Grenache, which I was talking about for Mothra. Nice. So that's that's the closest connection that I can make. I might keep ruminating on it, and, and is is there any kind of like novelty, like rose infused wines out there? Well, what's that? Yeah. What's the noble rot one? Talk about the noble rot one again. I know I'm always the, trying to get you to do that. The again. noble rot, the the Botrytis, Botrytis, Botrytis yeah. wine. Yeah. So there's this phenomenon in. I'm not sure that that's the same thing, but no, but but, but tell, um, talk about it anyway. It's sure, cool sure, it is, it is cool. But so Botrytis <laughs> is it's a mold. And it attacks okay. certain grapes. And in theory, you would think that that's a bad thing. But at a certain point, they were like, hey, let's just see what happens if we like ferment these, bot- they call them botricized grapes. And so they're like okay. shriveled up and kind of moldy looking. They look really gross. And they found that it actually yields really, really delicious dessert wines. So like Sauterne and a bunch of other French dessert wines are made from these botricized grapes that are basically attacked by this mold. I feel like that's closer to the monster that we were the, talking the about. The pollution monster, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, mm-hmm. apparently rich, like nobles loved it, and so they called yeah. it the noble rot. Yeah. And there's actually a dogfish head beer that they make like once a year or something called the noble rot, where they take these botricized grapes and they use that as part of the mast to make the beer. And it's just very, very like sweet and kind of champagne-y in its taste. It is very, it's very, uh, very good. And and Winston got me a bottle of it yeah. when he went to Dogfish Head when we had just started dating. And so yeah. we always think of the noble rock. <laughs> it's all like, it's all like, oh, this is trash. But hey, rich people like it. Yeah. Like, let's upsell. <laughs> um, but you just asking if there's like rose infused wine. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've heard of that. Because at this point, there's kind of everything on the planet exists. Yeah, there's there's got to be some, yeah, some like, I know. novelty cheap, you know, wine out there maybe where it's just like, hey, totally. look, put a rose in it or some shit. I you mean, know? I mean, they they make dandelion wine, so I I, okay. have, I bet yeah. that they make rose wine as well. Hey, you know, dandelion wine that's close enough, honestly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, dandelion yeah. wine is actually pretty tasty. Do you have a like a, a favorite? No, I can't. Or? I can't. I I don't know. It's not like a commonly found thing. I've just like had mm-hmm. one or two at a like you know uh-huh. kind of hippie boutique place and been yeah. like, oh, this is fun. But yeah, you know, it's like it's kind of sweet, but it's got that kind of tanginess that you know because you mm-hmm. can eat dandelions, so um, it kind of you know tastes like a dandelion. Rose petals, not so much. I think they're technically edible, mm-hmm. but. I think I don't know. Don't quote me on that. But uh, just to make a really uh, kind of sappy <laughs> bit of ching <laughs> uh, uh, connection, but uh, rose, which yeah, a lot of people, of which a lot of people call rose 
wine inexplicably um, inexplicably yeah. even though <laughs> even though they, i think i think it's just they don't know that it's rosé yeah so they just call it rose wine so uh-huh. but we're getting uh, to that time it's rosé time oh i love rosé and i would totally <laughs> toast a, a glass of rosé to that lady's spirit <laughs> ascending in this yeah it is it is a magical wine for this magical film Beautiful. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Well, thank you cool. so much for your time again. Is there anything you want to directly plug with your own human voice? Yeah, or any any last thoughts to... Oh, my God. Yes. My, my YouTube channel is called The Long Take. I do not upload frequently, uh, and I do not promote it very much, but it's on there. I've got several video essays that you might want to check out. My production value has definitely in- increased over time. I, I have some fun little essays on uh, Blade Runner, on Mad Max, on... I've, I've, I've done... The first three Alien movies, and I will eventually do more. There's the aforementioned original Godzilla comparison uh, between the original and uh, the Gareth Edwards 2014 movie. And yeah, uh, my short film will very shortly be available on Amazon Prime. So, Oh, wow. Oh, that's awesome. If you want to check that out, uh, the film's called Violet. It's a short film. It's in black and white. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's won a couple of awards. Um, I'm very proud of it. Oh, I it's can't my wait first to see it. like serious, actual for real short film. And uh, yeah, so check that out. Do me a solid and take a look at it. And other than that, no, I the only thing I would leave you guys with is a recommendation to watch some of these movies. Um, obviously, the very the original movie is a must watch. If you don't watch any Godzilla movie besides that one, watch that one. Like that's that's the one that you yeah. have to watch. And, um, yeah, uh, I hope uh, people come away from this feeling something new in the relationship to Godzilla. Yeah, I am certainly excited to go watch some of these movies that I have never seen before and rewatch the original and the most recent. And probably by the time this is released, uh, King of the Monsters will have come out. Yeah. All right. Well, Rafa, thank you so much again for your time. Thank you so uh, much. Guys, this thank was you awesome. so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Pairing, and don't forget to watch Raphael's film Violet on Amazon Prime. And thanks again to our sponsors this week, Care Of and Wink. Go to TakeCareOf.com and enter the promo code PAIRING for 25% off your first order of vitamins, supplements, and protein powders, and go to TryWink.com slash PairingPodcast for $22 off your first order of wine. Thanks for listening to Pairing where you come for the stories and stay for the wine. Pairing was created, hosted, and produced by Emma Scherzarko, with music and audio recording by Winston Shaw and logo artwork by Darcy Zimmerman and Katie Huey. This episode was edited by Emma Scherzarko. Follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Pairing Podcast to keep tabs on what we're up to. And feel free to send us any thoughts, questions, requests, and pairings of your own on our website, thepairingpodcast.com, via email at pairingpodcast at gmail.com or on any social media platform. Come check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast, where you can pledge as little as $1 a month and get access to exclusive content, customized pairings from me, live streams, and more. Check out our new merch store on our website at thepairingpodcast.com slash merch. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends. Thank you so much for listening to Pairing, where you come for the stories and stay for the wine.